0: book of Genesis again this week and one more time next week we're not going to complete the entire book at this time just the first 11 chapters we've been studying the origins of man and the beginnings of civilization well last week in chapter 8 we saw that the waters receded the ark came to rest and at just the right time God told Noah to disembark from the ark it was a new world uh, different from the one when they had entered the ark the previous year And Noah immediately, when they got off the ark, built an altar and he made a lavish sacrifice to the Lord. And it was a sacrifice to the Lord, but it was also a reminder to Noah and his family. It's a reminder that they were sinners in need of grace, a reminder of the graciousness of God sparing them from judgment. And you remember it was a burnt offering or a burnt sacrifice, meaning it was completely consumed on the altar, and that was to remind them that they were to give themselves completely and wholly to the Lord, to live lives completely devoted to him. After the sacrifice, God promised as long as the earth remained, he would not curse the ground, and he would not destroy all the living creatures. And even in making that promise, God recognized that man would still continue to do evil, man would still continue to sin. And we know that there is another judgment coming that's talked about in the in the new testament we know the earth itself will be destroyed but until then god continues by his own grace god continues to be patient with man giving him time and opportunity to repent and return to him now some theologians have labeled this period of time meaning the period from uh, post-flood to where we are today they've labeled this period of time the age of grace The time between the flood when the earth was destroyed and the coming destruction and judgment is the age of grace. And and I would say to you, we're quite possibly living near the end of the age of grace. This is the time of God's patience. This is the time of God's forbearance uh, with man. And it's been going on for over 4,500 years now, but we shouldn't presume on that grace. We should recognize that that time is going to come to an end. this morning we find ourselves in chapter 9 the flood is over although there are many signs and reminders of the flood all around by the way i think i've said this before but but in case you didn't hear me say it you really need to take advantage of the opportunity when you can to visit the ark encounter especially if you have children the ark encounter is a full-scale replica Of the ark and there's so much information and understanding you can glean not only about the flood but also about uh, creation as well well let's jump into chapter 9 and we're going to start with the first seven verses and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man." Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply on it. So you see that immediately as they exit the ark and Noah's made the sacrifice, it says that God blessed Noah and his sons. And of course, that would include their wives. Now imagine, as they're coming out of the ark, they're seeing the incredible power of God that brought the judgment of the flood they're coming out on a on a land that is strewn with death and knowing that it was the wrath of God poured out that caused that so it must have been an incredible blessing for them to hear uh, God's blessing as they begin a new life they walk out of that ark the, these eight the small family and they're completely alone on the earth well no they're not alone are they God is with them Now, remember, Noah didn't escape judgment because he was sinless. Noah didn't escape judgment because his righteous deeds outweighed his wickedness. Noah escaped judgment simply because he believed God and God chose to show Noah favor and show Noah grace. And I think you and I would do well to remember that even in our very best moments, we don't deserve anything but judgment we're not worthy we're not good enough to receive grace it's simply the gift of god to those who believe it's his gift to us so verse one says god bless noah and then you see he instructs noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and you see that instruction repeated down in verse seven it's a repeat of the command that god gave adam and eve back in genesis chapter one and verse twenty eight and we do well to remember that the blessing of procreation is a sign of the mercy and grace of god why is that well adam and eve were blessed and they were fruitful and the earth was filled with wicked people and now here god comes he gives a command again to noah knowing more sinful people will be born knowing that some will turn to him some will repent some will choose for him to be their god And some will not. And to those who follow him, he's going to show mercy and grace and blessing on top of blessing. But God gives Noah the same command, having already seen that Adam and Eve were fruitful and wicked people came as a result of that. He gives Noah the same command, knowing it's going to happen again. And you think about it God could have said to Noah, you know, Noah, after all I've been through with Adam and Eve, I've decided um, that, that you're going to be childless and your sons are going to be childless. There won't be any more babies. You and your sons and your family, you can go ahead and you can live to an old age. And when you die, I'm just going to start over. I'm going to create a being that won't sin and not, not, not repeat this whole experiment all over again. No more sinners, no more sin. No, after you die, I'm finished with man. That's not what God did, thankfully. God gave the blessing of marriage and of family and of children and of course, the greatest blessing of all, not children, but what? Grandchildren. Yeah, just so we're clear on that. Verse 2, it looks a little bit different than the dominion that God gave Adam and Eve. He gives them dominion over the animals again. He says, into your hand they are delivered. But you notice now, the animals will be fearful of man. Now, when Adam and Eve were in the garden and originally given dominion, there, there was no fear. Why? Because it was a perfect world. There was no death. There was no disease, no suffering, no anger. There was nothing but peace. You remember that God brought the animals to Adam to name, and there was perfect harmony between humans and animals. But no longer. When the fall occurred, excuse me, the rebellion occurred, and the earth was corrupted with sin, the consequences of sin not only affected man, but it also affected the animals over which man had dominion. So God says, now I'm going to put fear and dread in the animals. I suspect that not long after the rebellion, there began to be problems between animals and man because once sin had entered and once corruption had entered, that changed everything. But now you've got eight people on the entire earth exiting the ark. The animals could have pretty quickly wiped out those eight people. And so God provided uh, or protected man by causing the animals to fear him. Related to that, look in verse 3. You see another change in the new world is man's diet. Genesis 1 says that, man, or that God gave man and animals every seed-bearing plant. God gave them all the green plants for food. And I, I've mentioned to you before, um, there was no death, no taking of life for the purpose of food up to this point because God had given them the plants. But now, that changes. In fact, we're reminded here that humans are a higher life form. Because God says, every moving thing that lives shall be for food. And as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Now, l- let me be clear. I want to make sure you understand me here. You don't use a sound bite and, and not hear everything I have to say. I'm not an advocate of torture or abusing or mistreating animals in any way. However, the modern animal rights movement is way off base. It's a movement that, for the most part, utterly degrades the human race, actually makes us lower than the animals. In fact, in the eye of most of those in the the animal rights movement, we're nothing more than an evolving line of of animals. And the reason we're told to treat animals uh, the way that we do people is because they believe that animals are on the same level as humans. Some of these groups actually say that if you kill an animal for food, it's the moral equivalent of murder. Many of them say that when you eat meat, it's cannibalism. Listen, if you look at the definition of the word cannibalism, it means eating one of your own kind. We're not of the same kind as animals. It's not cannibalism if you're a meat eater. They say that man is is a tyrant and he's detrimental to the environment. And let me say again, I'm not saying we should mistreat or allow cruelty to animals, but God clearly said twice now, we have dominion over them. They are for our use, and here he says they are given to us for food. The problem I have with animal rights groups is their view of man. Probably the most well-known group is PETA, Ingrid Newkirk, who founded PETA, said this, there's no rational basis for saying that a human being has special rights. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. It's her words. She was speaking to a Washington Post reporter about her disdain for killing animals for food, and she said this, six million Jews died in concentration camps, but... Six billion broiler chickens will die this year in slaughterhouses. I don't know how you compare the two. And and again, I'm not trying to offend you if you're an animal lover or vegetarian. I love animals. That's not the problem. The problem with this movement is this, the absolute disdain for humans made in the image of God. There's something wrong when there's greater concern for the killing of chickens given to us for food while we slaughter babies made in the image of God. 1973, the Roe v. Wade decision unleashed all kinds of evil. And I can't help but wonder when we we look at for sure there is cruelty to animals in, in our day and age. But I can't help but wonder when we look at that, if we could go back to 1973 and prior to 1973, I wonder if the increase in cruelty to animals has gone up significantly since then. And here's why I say that. Once you devalue human life, what's left? God provided animals for for our service to serve us and for us to eat. And as long as we are humane in our treatment of them and how we take them for food, we are in line with God's destruction to have dominion for them and to care for them. Look in verse four, one prohibition he gives. You shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. Now, we understand this particular instruction, this particular dietary instruction is for all people for all time. There are many dietary laws in the Old Testament. You've read many of those. They're they're given to Israel in the Mosaic Law and the Ceremonial Law. This particular instruction is repeated in Leviticus, but it is here in effect before the law, and it's never been revoked. We're not to eat raw meat, if you will, or or an animal with the blood still in it. Now, before I give you the the scriptural reason, um, the purpose for that, let me tell you there's a very practical health reason. Ever since the rebellion, we live in a fallen world that is in a state of entropy. What does that mean? It means that everything is disintegrating. So since the fall, there have been all kinds of mutations that have created uh, dangerous parasites and, and viruses and bacteria. Those things we know scientifically, those things, those sorts of diseases can be transmitted in the blood. And so God is protecting Noah and us with this prohibition. But here's a more important reason, scriptural reasons. Life is associated with blood. We mentioned before when we observed the Lord's Supper that the blood of Jesus was given for us. And in Hebrews it says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. The payment for sin is death. It's the sacrifice of a life. And so in the Old Testament sacrificial system, when the animal was sacrificed, literally it was like the animal was taking the place of the center and when the animal was sacrificed it was to be sacrificed in such a way that the blood flowed out it, it was the blood that made atonement for the soul and it was to be poured out before the lord so what that tells us is the blood uh, the the life belongs to him it's it's sacred it's not for our consumption as humans notice on in verse five and six on the shedding of blood God establishes the penalty for murder, death for death. And you see there the word require, that, that's a judicial term. God is saying, I will require a reckoning. Is, is the judge, I require a reckoning for one who takes another's life. And what he's doing here is setting up the foundation for, for civil government. The main role of government, regardless of what you see government doing, the main role of government is to maintain law and order. And when Cain killed Abel, there there was no civil law at that time. But now God is establishing law. He's establishing the penalty for murder. And just like the dietary restriction in verse 4, these instructions are judicial statements. They're made here, and they have never been revoked. That is still God's instruction for today. Now, just be clear, individuals do not have the right to, to mete out capital punishment to those who do wrong. Individuals don't have the right to mete out any punishment. That divine right is given to the government. You'll find that in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. The government is given that right. And, and I know it's unpleasant. Some of you in here may say, well, I'm opposed to capital punishment. It's unpleasant to think about capital punishment. But God has given that to provide a protective power to the stabiliza- for the stabilization of society. And it's his law and it's his decree. He determined the necessity of the death penalty for the protection and blessing of creation. When you see also in verse 5 and 6, you might say, well, why is the penalty so severe? He says it's because God made man in his image. We have no right to destroy the image of God. And he's made that very clear. But let's pick up in verse 8 and uh, let's go back to the text and read down through verse 17. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And you can imagine, even inside the ark, the flood was a very uh, traumatic experience for Noah and his family. And then as they come off the ark, they see these devastating effects. That's probably why you see... In those verses, verses 9 through 17, you see the word covenant repeated several times. The word covenant is meant to bring comfort. It's, it's the first time you see the word covenant used in Scripture. And a covenant, very simply, is a binding uh, promise. It's a promise or a binding relationship. And, and through Scripture, sometimes God made conditional promises. Those promises were contingent on how people responded or contingent on their obedience. But a covenant's not conditional. A covenant, when God decrees a covenant, it does not change. He is always faithful. Even if you break your end of the covenant, it's not a contract that we break and then sue each other. Even if you break your end of the covenant, God is still faithful. He is always faithful. And so here in Genesis 9, God makes an unconditional promise to the animals and to man, a promise that will not be broken. And the promise is there will never be another global flood like the one in Noah's day. The promise is that God will never send a global event to wipe out all uh, animals and and man that are on the earth. And in verse 13, God declares the rainbow which he set in the clouds would be a sign of the covenant. Now, let me just say a a quick word on that without um, maybe going overboard here. Pastor Jason gets real nervous about now when he knows I'm going off script. You know, the rainbow has been used in in different ways besides what's mentioned here in Scripture. And we need to remember every time we see a rainbow, the rainbow is God's sign. The rainbow is is the symbol of God's covenant with Noah and his promise to us. And, And the rainbow was established in the 1657th year after the world began. And if I've got my math right, that means that the rainbow has been God's sign and God's symbol for almost 4,400 years. So as descendants of Noah, we we now live in the church age. And when we see the rainbow, it's more than a reminder that there's not going to be another global flood. The, The rainbow, every time we see it, it's a reminder that God is patient. God is patient. He is filled with grace. He is filled with patience. He is filled with mercy. He doesn't want anyone to perish. And so the rainbow reminds us God is withholding his judgment to allow more time for the gospel to go out to a sinful world and a wicked people whom he loves. The world deserves judgment, immediate judgment. But for now, we get grace and mercy. For now, we get time to complete the task that he's given us, the commission that has been given to us by Jesus. You know, we've said it before. In fact, I've said it a couple times in the last two weeks. We have to be continually reminded there is a final wrath to come. There is a time when the entire universe is going to be destroyed by fire and everyone who has not repented and has not turned to Christ will be condemned forever. Every time we see the rainbow, we should thank God for his grace and remember that this period of grace will end perhaps soon, perhaps even in our lifetime. Well, you see the final section of chapter 9, verses 18 through 29, tell us that from Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the entire earth was repopulated. Let me say something maybe you've never thought of and might be shocking to you. There is only... One race. There's only one race. You see, every one of us, not just in this room, every one of us across the entire face of the earth can trace our lineage through Shem, Ham, and Japheth, through Noah, and back to Adam. We are all, every one of us on the face of the earth are a descendant of either Shem or Ham or Japheth. And when I say we all, I mean every nation and every people group. There's just one race. I'm not a biologist. <laughs> what? I hope you folks in the venue aren't laughing too. I was going to say, I'm not a biologist, but according to Scripture, there are no different races of humans biologically. Man, if we could ever get that point across would that not change some of the division and strife that we deal with? It's just one, we're all one race. One final item, I wish we could skip this one, but before we wrap up, the final item is the sin of Noah. We don't have a lot of details. We don't know exactly why Noah drank too much wine and why he got drunk. By the way, Scripture is clear in Ephesians 5.18 that drunkenness is a sin. And... I don't, I don't have time. This isn't a message about drinking, but I want to very quickly say this about, about drinking. While having a drink is not a sin, I do not drink at all. Never have. And there are two reasons for that. Paul wrote these words, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. I, I see no profit in a drink of alcohol. I see a lot of downside to it. Secondly, God's word says, all things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. For me, that means to take a drink is to run the risk of wanting more, of becoming drunk and of being mastered by drink. And if you think that's not a problem, you need to sit down with Matt Sullivan and let him tell you what an incredible problem that has caused in so many broken lives. Noah becomes drunk, and he makes a fool of himself. He he brings shame on himself. So here's Noah. Noah's this this righteous man. He's righteous enough to be saved from from the wrath and the judgment that came on the entire earth. And we've seen all these good things about Noah and how he obeyed God. And now there's this. Why, Why did God even share this with us? God always tells the truth, all of it. And you know, I think when you see heroes like uh, Moses or or like David, when you see their sins exposed and not covered up, that's a pretty good uh, indication the Bible is the inspired word of God. Because if this this book had been man's idea, men would hide things like this. They would hide things and not, not want to look bad, but God gives us the whole story. And so what happens? Noah's in his tent, he is drunk, he's exposed, he's naked ham the father of canaan you know who canaan's descendants were canaanites he doesn't cover up his father but he goes out and tells his brothers and he probably um, he he doesn't just inform them or this would not have happened he probably makes fun of his father it's a breach of decency and respect it was a, a much greater sin at that time than it appears to be in our day to disrespect parents And so a curse is placed on Canaan. Well, why Canaan? Canaan's the youngest son of Ham. Why is the curse placed on him? Well, in verse 24, the word son can mean either son or grandson. It may have been Canaan, the grandson, rather than Ham, who went into the tent and disrespected his grandfather. But at the very least, he likely shared his father's irreverent attitude. And so you see in verses 25 through 27, Noah's curse on Canaan and the blessing of Shem and Japheth. And in that, there's some pretty remarkable prophecies. The Canaanites are conquered by the descendants of Shem, the Israelites. See, the Canaanites were a very wicked people. The Canaanites had become slaves to pagan gods. They were involved in idolatry and, and even child sacrifice. You know, I mentioned before in the, in the study of Exodus when we were in, in that study, some people read the Old Testament account of nations that were wiped out. Israel went in and God told them to wipe out the Canaanites, and they they hear stories like that, and they say, well, your God is a bloody God. He's a violent God. He's, He's unfair, and he's unjust. But we have to remember, the Canaanites were unrepentant people. God gave them plenty of time to change their ways, but they were unrepentant, and they just became more and more wicked. They were as wicked as the people destroyed in the flood. But also remember that God is merciful toward the repentant. Rahab was a Canaanite. But Rahab made the decision. She was not destroyed. She made the decision to stop being a Canaanite spiritually because she made the decision to believe in the one true God. So Canaan is cursed. Shem and Japheth are, are, are blessed. Japheth's blessing was that his tents would be enlarged. The descendants of Japheth established some of the greatest nations in the world. Shem is to be Lord over Canaan. We know his descendants conquered Canaan, and the land that they conquered belongs to them to this day, regardless of what any person or government says. But land was given to them by God. From the line of Shem came Abraham. From the line of Shem came the chosen people of God. From the line of Shem came the promised Messiah. And so what you see is from the line of righteousness comes great blessing. It's an amazing story when you really dig in and see how God dealt with his people and how those who obeyed God and those who honored God and those who repented and turned to God were blessed, blessing on top of blessing. And that is still the way God operates today for people who obey and repent and turn to him. In just a few moments, we'll sing a song of response here in the worship center, there in the venue as well. That's a time for us to think and reflect over what God has said. And let me say to you, if you're here this morning and you need some help in that response, you need some help with your next step. Maybe your next step is coming to faith, just like Rahab did. Maybe your next step is making some changes in your life, recognizing that God is being patient with you. His patience leads us to repentance. Maybe there's some change that needs to happen in your life, and you're not sure. You, you, you want to take a next step. You're not sure what it is. Let me tell you how it works. If you're in the venue, there are pastors on each side of the room up there to help you. If you're here in the worship center, I'm going to be right down front. You don't have to wait till the song is over. If you need some help, you need to pray, you just come. If you want to wait till we finish the service and as you leave this morning, just to your left is a little alcove. There are some big signs there that say next steps. A couple of our pastors will be there. They have on bright green lanyards and, and you'll know to go to them and they can help you. But as we come to the end of a time of looking at God's word, we always have to stop and reflect and say, well, okay, wh- what is God saying to me? And Let me just suggest a few things and this may or may not be where you are. The first is this. Do you think very often about the blessings of God, about the fact that in Christ you're not under judgment? See, I think a lot of times for us as believers, especially if we've been believers for any length of time, we forget that we were under a curse, under wrath, facing eternal judgment. And we need to be reminded on a, on a regular basis, hopefully a daily basis, of the blessing of God that we are no longer under judgment. In Christ, we've been redeemed. Do you think of it often enough to thank him? Or have you forgotten since that point when you first came to Christ of the importance of thanking him for what he's done for you? I think another thought i would have this morning would be to ask myself how 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 should i be living in the age of grace we need to be careful we don't we don't presume on grace the purpose of grace the purpose of his kindness is to lead us to repentance and that's not just for unbelievers For us as believers sometimes there are things in our life that we need to repent of and we don't need to assume because God has not brought yet consequences into our life that we've gotten by his kindness leads us to repentance and as we live in the age of grace not only for ourselves we need to think about others and make sure that they understand there's not plenty of time to repent today is a day of salvation one of the thought would be this. Are you being bold in your stand for the Lord? You know, the, the godlessness of this world can be fright, quite frightening to stand against. But I imagine even in the ark, Remember, they couldn't see a lot of what was happening outside. They probably heard things hitting the side of the vessel. There probably was a lot of movement in the vessel. It was dim. It wasn't well lit. The air was was stale. Probably even in, in the ark, they were frightened at times. But They were in the ark. Completely safe. We need to remember that we're in the ark. And not let what's happening in our world frighten us, but continue to boldly stand for the cause of Christ. Would you bow with me this morning? Those of you in the venue, would you bow as well? And let's take a moment as we do each week to to reflect. Ask the Spirit of God. Don't, Don't listen to my words. Ask the Spirit of God. What are you saying to me? Talk to the Spirit of God and ask the Spirit of God, what have you said and how do I need to respond? Let's take a moment and do that right now.